Pride in Protest would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we made this podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Wangal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging, and the First Nations activists who have led the movement against police brutality on this continent. This episode includes descriptions of violence and assault at the recent rally to protect trans kids on the 10th of October at Taylor Square. Please listen with care for your mental health as we discuss the crackdown on the right to protest, Mark Latham's parental rights bill, and police brutality. Welcome to Pride and Protest, the podcast. Hi, Charlie. How are you? I'm good, Bridget. How are you? We are we are going cross state. It's Pride and Protest cross state episode. It is with our two most popular hosts. Um, <laughs> we've never even been on a pod together, so this is exciting. No, this is just this is only family. This is only Pride and Protest family. This episode, so yeah. So. Let's just dive right in. The weekend was wild, right? It was so crazy. It was really, really intense. Yeah, so I'm over here on Wurundjeri land and I didn't see anything. So please tell me what happened. It was really, really crazy. I was at the time, so I actually had a flight (laughs) that I was coming in from Adelaide And the time that my flight landed, I didn't actually have time to go back home and put my suitcase back at home. So I had to bring my suitcase to the protest. So everything that I tell you in this following story, you have to imagine that the entire time I have a wheelie suitcase that I'm taking around with me at all times, which makes the whole thing very bizarre for myself. But what, what happened is at around people started to kind of gather in places around Oxford Street at around 12.30. So there was a lot of people that were getting ready to get onto Taylor Square at um, one o'clock. And, you know, we were kind of having a look at what the police presence was. You know, there was a reasonably large presence on um, Taylor Square um, and, you know, some of the police circulating on bikes and stuff. And, some journos came over and they wanted to do um, an interview, um, but it was like five minutes before one and we couldn't finish the interview because we knew that as soon as it hit one o'clock, every single one of the activists, the attendees of the rally, you know, the people in different kind of contingents and groups and stuff were going to come and decentralized at one o'clock on Taylor Square And it was quite amazing, you know, like the police were standing there and they were obviously ready to break things up as soon as things happened. But what happened at one o'clock was just a whole bunch of people came onto Taylor Square and they started chanting really, really loudly. Like all these people um, outside the court hotel, I probably think about maybe like a group of 30 of them just poured out and and just started chanting and just completely took control of um, of Taylor Square, you know, and people just kind of rushed it or came in um, at exactly one o'clock. And then at that stage, you know, you had uh, hundreds of people already on Taylor Square by one o'clock. And essentially the police did not know what to do because, you know, this wasn't one of the decentralized rallies that you might've seen uh, protests 
do um, in the past. It really was, there was a single location and everyone knew where to be there. We just knew that we had to have the numbers to make sure that when we got there, it was really difficult for the police to pick people off. So, um, and one of the other benefits of being in Taylor Square as well was that it is a public place. So it was very hard for the police to tell whether the people that were milling around beforehand or passing through were going to be there for the protest or whether they were simply passing through Taylor Square. So it was very, very hard for them to act because they couldn't tell the difference. But as soon as one o'clock hit, there was probably, you know, hundreds of people that were there and we got to kick off the rally, which frankly, like I was stoked about, you know, personally, I was a little bit pessimistic and I wasn't sure whether you know, me and Kat, who were co-chairing the rally, could could get up and start it, um, but we did. So the rally started and um, Kat did a little introduction. I read out a little uh, message from uh, Auntie Rhonda, who's a Gadigal elder, uh, who just wrote some words in support. Um, and then we had two speeches, one from April from Carr, who gave a very fiery anti-police uh, message um which you know i'm sure i always i always think about it at these rallies as well you know whether whether when the police hear that kind of invective like they know that afterwards they just want to get you back as just a form of revenge like they actually want to target you as activists because you actually speak out against them in public but anyway that's just a side note um april is an amazing speaker, very, very passionate, very fiery, um, very bolshy. We love it. And I mean <laughs> bolshy in a, in a good adjective sense. Um, uh, and then Genevieve Doyle gave a speech who uh, was a um, trans teacher who I believe um, got fired um, for being trans. Um, wow. And, yeah, so she gave a really good speech as well. However, at that time, some people were coming up and talking and we were like, we've got to start moving this on. And the reason for that was because you could see the police on the side, on the um, Kinsella's roadside, kind of getting ready. And what they had actually done was set up an LRAD. Now, what an LRAD is, is a long-range audio device. It's basically this giant machine that basically puts out a sound so loud that it essentially it essentially deafens the people that are in the way of it. And it, it basically is an incredibly extreme, violent and unnecessary piece of equipment that is used to disperse protesters. So, right. so it's a sound cannon. It emits like a really painful, loud noise. Yeah, and I understand that it can leave permanent damage on people. And where the police were setting this up, was in Taylor Square. <laughs> like, we're not talking about a place where there is a specific protest saying, say, happening in, like, a remote location, right? Like, maybe it's an environmental location in a specific area. They were setting it up in the middle of essentially a hub in the city where there are people in the pubs, there are people at restaurants, there are people passing through, there are people going about their day. You know, whether the question of whether they were actually going to use it remains to be seen, but depending on how authoritarian the police are, who can put it past them to actually use that and to, to 
give permanent damage to protesters and as well, you know, by bystanders or, or, or people who might just be essentially like caught as collateral damage for them. It just shows you how intense and psychotic the police response has been to protest in this country. Um, it, it, it really is insane. So that was set up. Don't know what was going to happen with it. But then there was a policeman who was on a, um, on a megaphone and started talking and we could see them starting to move towards us. So what we decided to do was to cut short the rest of the speeches and that we would march. So when we started to march, this is when stuff started to get more intense and the police started to get more bold in their actions on how violent they could be towards the individuals who were protesting. So we marched down Oxford Street from Taylor Square, which was uh, part of the original route of the 1978 march for a little bit of thematic symmetry there. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know, some people were trying to move out to the road, but the police were quite violently pushing them back onto the sidewalk. And then what happened, started to happen is people started to run part of the reason why people started to run and then why the police started to run run alongside them as well was because the march was getting broken up at the traffic lights and then so people would people would essentially be running to catch up with the last part of the protest we didn't want to be split up and be targeted by the police more easily so when everyone started running there was more of a sense of you know i guess the sense of intensity um or anxiety of the protest started to lift a little. So that, I think, was kind of the first signs of things starting to intensify. Uh, So I believe that the march got broken up into two main groups, one at the front and one at the back. And what happened with the one at the front, which I was in, uh, running again with a suitcase (laughs) down Oxford Street and through Hyde Park, was that we got to Hyde Park, we essentially were trying to march towards Parliament House because we were protesting Mark Latham's bill. So it was an important site to be at. However, when we got to uh, the main intersection that splits the two parts of Hyde Park, police stopped people from from moving or crossing the road there. Um, So what happened is that there was another sprint uh, of people and people moved to essentially where the the Starbucks is, where, where that wall is. So once we ended up there, the police put us into a kettle. Now, if people don't know what a kettle is, it is basically when the police have you up against a wall or, you know, a corner and they basically form a ring around you so you can't, so you can't escape that area uh, and then they can, they can pull people out one by one or, 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 or do whatever they want in that situation. Yeah, like it's a tactic of terrorising people into a really tight space and often, you know, splitting up the group into smaller and smaller bits until they've arrested everyone. Um, so it's a tactic that's really commonly used, but it's also, yeah, I guess one that is really harmful because you're, you've got crushing, you've got, like, pushing people, you've got a lot of, yeah, it's very easy for them to escalate violence when they have kettled you, when they've surrounded you in a ring and they're going in and grabbing people. Yeah, and the thing is, like, kettles, you know, across the world as a police tactic, you know, are used for for a lot of different situations. But the fact that the police are kettling you because what they want to charge you for 
is breaching the public health order, it is just so like, it's almost like darkly comic that they do it because they literally force you into a space where you cannot, you, you are shoulder to shoulder with other people. So, you can't socially distance. You can't. You can't it's, it's prime coronavirus spreading ground. Like not only are they touching you, but they're forcing you to touch all of the other people that are at the rally where previously if you'd just been able to march or you'd just been able to stay at Taylor Square, you wouldn't have had all of that really close contact where coronavirus could be spread. Exactly. You know, like, and the reason for that is that Kettling is a tactic with a single goal and the single goal is to crush the protesters. So it doesn't matter what the means to the end that they might use for that. That is the goal of a kettle. So what happened once we were in there was that basically a whole lot of violent scuffles broke out. At one point, you know, the police started pushing us and I was at the front and and uh, my suitcase actually came out from under me. So um, it was quite it was, it was quite dangerous. They started to pull people out one by one from the kettle. You know, they basically like slammed someone down and, and, and put them against the wall. Uh, another, pe- uh, and you know, a number of people were just, were just violently um, ripped from the kettle itself. Personally, I got a move on order and I decided to, uh, to, to come out of it only because I had my suitcase with me. So I didn't want to be to injure someone if it was like kicked or had hit someone somehow. And also I was seeing that, you know, the, the kettle was very, very soon to be dispersed at that stage. And essentially as soon as I had got out of it, then it, then it pretty much was over. And as I was out of it, I just started to, to film what, what was happening. And it was, it was incredibly confronting, you know, I mean, it's incredibly confronting one to see, all of your friends who are queer people, who are in your queer circles, you know, who who go out to the clubs with you, you know, who um, who enjoy themselves at queer spaces and queer parties with you, and that's how you know them. To see them be violently dragged along by the police, you know, I saw I saw one person who was um, who was who was handcuffed in a chair. And I assumed that they were being arrested, but actually the police had just handcuffed them to give them a fine. And he was basically um, yelling out to his friend, you know, he was having a panic attack. He was like, oh, I, I don't know what's going on. You have to tell me what's going on. They, they basically just like freaked out and, and, and couldn't process the things that were, that were happening around them. And it was clearly a mental health issue for them. Um, and the police had handcuffed him to a chair in order to give him a thousand dollar coronavirus fine to a chair like not just handcuffed to his own hands or like like he was around a chair like he was forced to sit down he was forced to sit down and he was handcuffed his hands behind the chair yeah yeah I know just 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 an insane form of of overreach and um you know, com- completely unnecessary. And he wasn't, he wasn't acting in a way where he was being resistant. He was acting in a way because he was fucking confused. <laughs> you know, he, he, was, he was afraid. He was afraid of the police. And the response of the police to his fear was, was to handcuff him. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just so clear that all of this is, it's about cracking down on 
the right to protest and the right to freedom of speech. Like it is not about coronavirus. This this clearly shows they have no regard for anybody's public health, for anybody's health, if this is how they are going about trying to enforce public health orders. Like it's absolutely hypocritical to see football stadiums, shopping centres, university classrooms filled with more people than are allowed to be outside protesting right now. And, you know, we've seen thousands of dollars in fines at this rally, thousands of dollars in fines uh, at the University of Sydney. Um, There's been political meetings of less than 15 people that have been broken up by police, meetings, like not even a rally, just a meeting. And, you know, this is not about public health. Like it's, it's just clearly, I just don't even understand how they can be so brazen Yeah. And for, for, for the media to just not even care. Like, I think I saw someone say that, you know, on the front page of the ABC website, there's this article about the protests that happened on Saturday, you know, to protect the rights of trans children. And then right next to it is huge pictures of the races in Randwick filled with people. And, and they're not being arrested and handcuffed to chairs and brutalised. It's it's insane. And, you know, in terms of the crackdown, just on a micro level, I mean, we had a comrade who just before they were going to, to go out to get ready for the day and they were, you know, and they were doing some organising for the rally, the police picked them up outside of their house and pulled them into their local station for essentially something that was completely unrelated to the protest, but they had chosen that day to bring them in. And our assumption on that is essentially that the police were looking at people that were going to the rally, either that were somehow, you know, more closely involved in the organising or or simply any fucking individual who said that they would be going on Facebook and would have tried to found some sort of reason to bring them in and had brought them into into the station on that, which is just absolutely absurd, you know, like the yeah, pol- it's authoritarian. <laughs> it's absolutely authoritarian. It's just like it's just all a kind of it's just a show, really. You know, it's it, it really is like a farce, like a like a piece of bizarre theatre. And you know, just on the just on the public health thing as well, like you know, even on a micro level, the hypocrisy of it is that. If you're pushing people around, if you're pushing people to the ground, if you're pushing them against a wall, you know, I, I saw people like violently like fall to the ground. I, I have, there were comrades who, who had like have to go to the doctor to make sure that their injuries that they sustained at the protest weren't serious. How is that not an issue of fucking public health? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, people being brutalized is an issue of public health. Yeah, um, actually, physical assault, um, yeah, if it's done by a police officer, that's not considered um, a health issue that needs medical treatment. Um, it's something that needs incarceration, apparently. Yeah, it's, it's for the good, good of the public, apparently. Yeah, absolutely shocking. And, I mean, like, I want to put this protest and the right to protest and coronavirus and all of these things, I kind of want to put them in context. Like, the Australian economy right now, What's happening with employment, with welfare, with housing? You know, the federal budget recently came out. I feel like, you know, in your article for Overland, you touched on this is all happening in a context that Australia is in right now. And, yeah, I was wondering if you could just expand on on where all of this sits in that broader picture. Yeah, I think what's really important to think about 
what's happening here is to think about, okay, what's going to happen next, right? And there are two kind of currents going here, right? One is that we have this Liberal government who is installing an austerity budget. And then on the other hand, you've got police cracking down on the right to protest. And specifically in this case, um, protesting um, against a minority being a form of a scapegoat. I think what is really key to look at in this regard is what has happened uh, recently in Greece with the Golden Dawn Party, because they basically have finally been brought to justice because they were violent Nazis. Um, and that's what they were as, as a party, but they gained influence and they gained proper political influence in, in the Greek parliament. And the reason for that is because Greece went through a horrific form of austerity after the GFC. For us, in terms of austerity, we are just at the start of that process. And it can really go either two ways. Either it can be that we form a critical resistance that pushes back and say, no, we need people to have employment. We need people to have housing. We need people to have a decent way of life because the other option and the other thing that arises in those situations is forms of reactionary thought or of um, or of fascism. Now, what what the Liberal Party's role to play in, in that is is questionable. And as I said in my article, you know, Mark Latham is proposing this anti-trans bill, which, gauging on what the support for it or what the reaction might be to it, can evolve into the Liberals federally having some sort of, I guess, confidence to go ahead again with the Religious Freedoms Bill. So that kind of, that more culture war, that kind of scapegoating, that, you know, very kind of deep right-wing reaction populism that comes from places like One Nation can be absorbed into the Liberal Party. Or the more frightening aspect of it is, is that if the austerity is bad enough, some form of harsher, more evil reaction will take its place. And so I think that we have to look at those kinds of currents now and say, we have to stand up to it now and we have to be against all those forms of reaction, whether they are institutional or whether they are not. And when I say institutional, I mean against the Liberal Party, I mean against the police, and I especially mean against the police just because of how emboldened they've been during coronavirus, you know, there's no reason to think that when coronavirus ends, that the police are going to act any differently. Because whether it's under the public health order mm -hmm. or whether it's under a government that sees that the right to protest can be cracked down and maybe they want to choose another reason to do so, um, that we need to resist that. And the other thing that we need to resist is, is getting ready to resist on, on the street and resist right-wing populism because depending on how bad and how deep the inequalities in our country get it's something we really do need critical resistance of and those kinds of currents have already appeared in australia after recessions you know the thing that the, the thing that defined right-wing populist mm -hmm. reaction in the 90s was you know 
those neo-Nazi groups, like as portrayed in Romper Stomper, the emergence of Pauline Hansen, it was no coincidence that those figures came out in Australia after the recession in the 90s. Yeah, and I, I kind of want to, you know, really focus on the fact that this bill is just another form of scapegoating and that that tactic is so well known to Australian politicians and the Australian government. I mean, in the wake of these huge cuts to job seeker, the end of job keeper, you know, reductions in welfare are ongoing. There are no jobs. Everybody is suffering because of the pandemic. Um, you know, people are going into thousands and thousands of dollars worth of arrears. They can't pay their rent. Like there's been huge, huge issues with housing and homelessness. And in the wake of all of that, this is a classic tactic. Scapegoat a minority group, create a moral panic, blame them for the situation that everybody is in. And, you know, we've seen it deployed against refugees and asylum seekers who are somehow simultaneously here to steal our jobs and also steal our welfare. Uh, We've seen it with Dan Andrews misdirecting the spread of coronavirus towards public housing estates filled with black, immigrant, non-English speaking communities instead of admitting to the fault that his government gave, you know, quarantine hotel contracts to corporations who allowed it to spread in the community. You know, it's this misdirection. It's this targeting of minorities. I think... Australia inherently has this national anxiety, this national, you know, white supremacist, usually, anxiety um, about minorities. And this has always had a political function in our country. And so I think I really want to situate Latham's bill as just another one of these really typical scapegoating tactics to just create panic, to create anxiety, to find someone to blame that isn't the institutions that actually are to blame. Uh, and in this case, it is trans children. And, you know, I just, I just, it's so ridiculous, but I do think it's important to really dig down into what this bill actually is about. So um, do you want to give us an overview of the bill and like what it's actually trying to, you know, proclaim oh. at this point? Oh, God. I actually just want to respond to what you had had said about scapegoating, especially for for trans people, because I think it's really interesting. I think that I think the comparison to race is interesting. I mean, they function so absolutely differently. You know, like the way that colonization and, and imperialism works in terms of it being the basis for for racism. But when it comes to racist scapegoating, there are a lot of economic arguments. So at least like how do I want to phrase this? Like when it comes to a recession, if racial minorities are targeted and there's an economic reason for it, people will make the connection more easily, obviously in a wrong and horrific fashion. Um, They they were connected on that economic level in terms of um, them living through a recession. The thing about scapegoating um, trans people and trans kids is that it really does function on this more like, kind of deep like apocalyptic level because the essential fear of trans people is that actually like they represent a complete breakdown in the actual like social fabric of the society and like essentially the way that people reproduce you know like the the fear of gay and lesbian and trans people is that they will somehow disrupt what sex and gender and sexuality is supposed to be to i guess the logical endpoint is that no one will have any babies or anything like that's kind of 
the, the thing about the fear of trans kids or, or, or trans people is that it's so far removed, like it represents a much deeper kind of neuroses or, um, you know, a psychotic way of thinking. Anxiety. Yeah, like this really existential anxiety about like how will, you know, families and children continue to exist Exactly, you know, and that and, and that kind of thinking, like that's that's a real deep kind of reactionary fascist way of thinking. So, you know, in that sense, like it is, it, it it's very terrifying um, when when it comes to the relationship between re- recession and, and scapegoating uh, in regards to trans people. Yeah, so what this bill uh, essentially is going to do is essentially makes it impossible for trans kids to exist in a, in, in a, in a school environment in, in any way that would mean that they could act and be, a, you know, the way that a, a normal kid should be, you know, the right to education that any kid should have and specifically is done through, you know, the repression of any form of, them seeking help for uh, their gender identity, um, for them to uh, to avoid or have some recourse when it comes to trans bullying, and uh, as well in the terms of what they might learn in school, they would never learn about what it means to be transgender, what it means to be like someone like them. So, you know, the bill would ban trans and gender diverse content um, from being taught. Uh, it would prohibit any counsellors from from talking, giving advice to kids. It would mean that teachers couldn't call students by their preferred pronouns and couldn't help them in in situations of transphobic bullying. Um, And it affects teachers as well because um, if the teachers refuse to comply with these directives, that they would be fired. Yeah, that's absolutely shocking. And, I mean, this is a bill that that is going to die on the floor. Like, it's not going to be passed. There's not support for it. Um, And it's definitely ridiculous in all its forms. Like, there's no way that this is ever going to be passed. But I think the fact that it can even be proposed in Parliament and obviously, you know, be used as fodder for the Religious Freedoms Bill that definitely did have the possibility of being passed um, is why it's so important to just completely shut it down. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I wish that was, I mean, you know, we didn't, we didn't have enough time at the rally. So I guess that, you know, that, that plays into it, but it would have been good that we had more of a political line to say, look, like we do think that this is, that this is going to die. But as we said, like the reason for protesting this is to shut it off at the source. Um, And for all those reasons given by looking into the future and seeing what it could be. Yeah. Um, And I guess, like, the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on is from here, where are we going with, you know, protests against this bill and the right to protest generally? I think in the face of police brutality, it can be really radicalising and it can force you to see the truth of, like, how society actually functions and how the state tries to control people who are left-wing and are, like, you know, trans and are queer and are trying to fight for rights. But I also think it can be terrifying And I think the future of what it looks like in the face of continued crackdowns, continued fines, you know, where to from here? Oh, God, that's a good question. I mean, Trans Day of Remembrance is coming up and that I think, you know, there was a lot of um, 
Last year was the year where the relationship with the police, what normally happened at the vigil for Trans Day of Remembrance, and for people who don't know what Trans Day of Remembrance is, it's the day where we observe globally all the trans people who have died from violence, essentially, you know, passing away, at, being, being killed or being, being murdered at the, the hands of someone else, or of suicide as well, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a deeply sad day for us to essentially reflect on the structural violence um, that is committed against us as as trans people and part of that structural violence that occurs to us is uh, either directly at the hands of police in terms of the deaths of transgender people um, in custody and most often those transgender people will have be intersecting with other identities mainly aboriginal and torres strait islander people or working class people poor people and just in general, you know, the, the way that transphobia functions in society, the way that it's either at the hands of the violence of someone else or the way that that transphobia is in, in, internalised and manifests itself as uh, mental health issues and suicide. So what happened with Trans Day of Remembrance is that the Gender Centre used to host it with the police, which is so absurd <laughs> and disgusting. So absurd. Disgusting. But last year, what happened is that um, Transaction Meringue and Trans Pride Australia decided that they did not want to have events um, that were held by um, held in conjunction with the police, and so held separate vigils. Which, because of their popularity, um, the Transaction Meringue rally, uh, well, not a rally, sorry, the vigil in uh, Newtown, uh, essentially just entirely packed out the space in front of the um, Newtown Neighbourhood Centre, put enough pressure on the Gender Centre to cut ties with the police. And they said that going forward, um, they will no longer be having the police as, as people who will be there as partners of the events. They won't be speaking. Um, they, they won't be doing anything. And also they used to hold it at Harmony Park, which is right by the police station. Like this is, they, that was like real deep pro-cop shit, you know? <laughs> like they held a vigil for trans people and trans people have died at the hands of the police and they held it next to the police station. But anyway, we've won on that and anti-cop sentiment has clearly won because the community is not happy with the police. I think the question for this year, it's on November the 20th, is what is it going to look like this year? What are we going to do for it? And I think that we have to take the same attitude that we took to this protest and said, no, it is our right to observe what has happened to trans people uh, over the last year. For example, there was a, um, a sex worker uh, who was trans in Kuji um, and she was murdered. Um, so we'll be remembering her life for this year. We, and we need to be out there and we need to be holding those events. And frankly, because of our relationship with the police as a community and how damaged it is, we don't need their permission to do it. And we, need to, and we need to be out there and we need to hold our own and say things are not good for our community, whether it's people attacking us in school or whether it's people attacking us on the street. And so what I think this protest has, has established is that, yes, we can hold and do these things without the police and they will be resistance. But queer people have resisted the police for a long time. And 
I think what this has indicated to us is that it does go in waves, you know. You can never hold the fact that your relationship with the police as a queer community is going to hold the same for the whole time, uh, for all time, you know. Things can go backwards and we have to recognise that we are in that position right now. As a queer community, we are in that position. As leftists, we are in that position as anyone who stands alongside any minority, whether it's for queer people, whether it's for Black Lives Matter, and there is a Black Lives Matter um, protest coming up. Um, we should link to that in the description. With the right to protest, we know now that we can hold spaces and that we can be there. It will come at a cost and it does require us to stand up the, to the police. But going forward, the only thing we can do is that because otherwise at some point there'll be nothing left for us to do yeah they'll chip and chip away and chip away yeah all right well thank you so much for coming on the pod and sharing and chatting with me um it's been so great to hear your voice and, and listen about all of the you know really inspiring stuff that is yet to come so thank you so much Oh, thank you, Bridget, and uh, I hope you're having a hope you're having a good time in Melbourne. And yeah, I think it's um, let us keep us updated from from what's happening there because it's exciting to have this um, this pod, you know, go across what's happening politically in both spaces. And I think we can we can cover what's what, what what's happening um, in in both Melbourne and Sydney really well. Yeah, Pride in Protest is definitely growing. Um, so. Don't feel restricted if you're just, uh, you know, in, in Narmore slash Melbourne and you want to get involved, please follow us and, and we'll, we'll, we'll link up. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Thanks, Bridget. Bye. Thank you for listening to Pride and Protest, the podcast. As a group of community organisers and activists based both in Sydney and Melbourne, if you would like to get involved or stay in touch with our work beyond our podcast, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash prideinprotest or on Instagram. Our handle is pride.in.protest.